want to find your place in your Bible today at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read the first four verses of that uh, chapter, and we're going to spend our time. This is the uh, next to the last message in this series, one more message, and I might mention to you that next week is the capstone. It is uh, perhaps the glue that holds all of this together. Uh, it's a message that really uh, transcends just our children. It's something that ought to be practiced in everybody's life toward one another, but it's going to be something that's desperately needed in our families, and I hope that you'll join me next week and be a part of that service as we talk about that very important subject, and that'll be the last message in this series about things they didn't tell you uh, when uh, your children were growing up, things they didn't tell you about parenting. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the, in the training and admonition of the Lord. And let me just read verse 4 one more time. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes as we continue talking about things that we weren't told about parenting, things that come out of the Scripture that a lot of people think are too antiquated and too old to be applicable to our day, and yet we learn that your, your Bible, your Word, is just as relevant today as it was the first day you gave it. The truth that is there is truth for all time, not just for some time. And I pray, Lord God, that you'll guide us into the truth today. We're talking about uh, this matter of parenting specifically to fathers and beyond fathers to mothers. But, Lord, I pray that we will know your heart today for children. In your name I pray. Amen. What I want to do by way of beginning today is I want to wrestle a little while with the text. You know, really, you should expect every pastor, every preacher of the Word to spend a few minutes wrestling with the text of Scripture. And the reason for that is our place is not to come and just find a verse of Scripture and use it as a springboard to tell you whatever it is we want to say to you. Our purpose as preachers of the Word of God is to come and find what the Bible actually says and then bring what it actually says to people and apply it to their lives. And I want you to see that your pastor wrestles every week with the Scripture. It also helps you to understand how to study uh, the Scripture for yourself. But you'll notice in verse 4 that he specifically references fathers. He doesn't reference mothers. He doesn't say parents. That particular word, pater, is the word for father. It's used and translated most often as the word father. But there is one occasion in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, where it's translated as parents, and rightfully so, because in that context, he's clearly, it's a context about Moses, about Moses' parents protecting him, keeping him from Pharaoh's destruction that he wanted to bring to him. It's clearly talking about both mother and father. And so you can use it in that context, pater. You can use it in the context of both parents, mother and father. But it's my estimation that that's not what he's doing here because in verse 1, he uses a completely different word uh, and the word refers to and specifically means parents. Gonus is the word for parents. 
And then he comes down and he takes the Old Testament commandment, fathers and mothers. And then he narrows it down a little bit further from parents to fathers and mothers all the way down to this word fathers. And the reason he's doing this is because this is a very important moment. This is a transformational moment for a lot of fathers in the first century. Don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that the truth I'm going to be talking about today doesn't also apply to mothers. It most certainly does. But he's acknowledging here that fathers have the leadership in the family. I make no apology for saying that. Fathers have the leadership responsibility in the family. We set the pace. Fathers set the pace. But even beyond that responsibility, there's something going on culturally behind this text that you need to understand. We're looking at Roman society, what Roman society was like, not Jewish society. Jewish society valued children and loved children. But in Roman society, they had a different perspective on children altogether. And I want to take you to one author who's a historian. And I want, you, I want to read to you what he has to say about what children or how children were received in the first century. And I should prepare you in advance that some of the things you're going to hear are going to be disturbing as you think about first century society. But when you hear these things in the historical setting, you'll understand how revolutionary is what the Apostle Paul is saying here to, to husbands and wives a few verses before, to bond servants and masters a few, ser- a few verses later, and what he's saying here specifically uh, to families, to fathers and children. Listen to what this historian says. A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could punish as he liked and could even inflict the death penalty. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over a child's whole life, as long as the father lived. A Roman son never came of age. Even when he was a grown man, even if he were a magistrate of the city, even if the state had crowned him with well-deserved honors, he remained within his father's absolute power. He continues, when a child was born, it was placed at its father's feet. And if the father stooped and lifted the child, that meant that he acknowledged it and wanted to keep it. If he turned and walked away, it meant that he refused to acknowledge it, and the child could literally be thrown out. Because of how men and women, he says, changed their partners with bewildering rapidity. Under such circumstances, a child was a misfortune. It was the custom that unwanted children were left in Roman Forum, in the Roman Forum. There they became the property of anyone who cared to pick them up. They were collected at night by people who looked after them in order to sell them as slaves or to stock the brothels of Rome. As he continues, ancient civilization was merciless to the sickly or deformed child. Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher, Stoicism dealing with, dealing with pain, having pain and heartache and hardship, but showing no emotion about it. Seneca writes, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed we drown. The author continues, children who were weak or imperfectly formed had little hope of survival. 
And then he finishes out. He says, it was against this situation that Paul wrote his advice to children and parents. If ever we are asked what good Christianity has done to the world, we need only point to the change brought about in the status of women and children. So often we read the Bible through our Western 21st century eyes, and we don't stop to realize the historical setting in which these things are being given and the reality how, of how revolutionary they were. And this teaching about parents and children, though he reaches back into the Old Testament and takes one of the Old Testament, ten, one of the commandments out of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, and he brings it forward, he's nevertheless writing to a Roman culture who did not value children. Children were little more than possessions. And he comes to the fathers, not just the mothers, not to parents in general, though he's speaking beyond fathers to parents in general. He comes to the fathers who had this absolute authority over their children, and he says, you're not to behave like that. That's not the conduct that you're supposed to have as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who is committed to the way of Christ. Fathers, you are to love your children. Father, fathers, you're not to provoke your children. You're to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You're, you're to treat them with the value with which God gives all children that come into this world, even those that haven't yet been born, that are being aborted in the mother's wombs. We have a situation very much like Roman society when it comes to that aspect of abortion. And so he's writing something that is literally revolutionary when these fathers hear it. Not only are you the leader in your family and responsible, one who's going to have to answer to God, but as one in Roman society who supposedly has this absolute authority, I tell you, you should treat your children properly and you should raise your children rightly and they should understand the depth of your love for them. Now, there's two things that are said in this verse, verse 4. One of them's negative, and the other is positive. Now you understand the historical setting and why he addresses this sp specifically to fathers, including mothers secondarily, but he specifically says fathers. I want you to notice there's both a negative and a positive command. Two commands in this verse. One's negative and the other positive. The first one is the negative. He says, fathers, do not provoke. There it is. Do not provoke your children to wrath. And then the positive, bring them up. That's the positive command. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. To provoke means to anger, to irritate, to exasperate a child to the point of resentment or to the place of discouragement. And when he talks about don't provoke your children, that negative command He's saying it in this continuous sense. Don't keep on doing it. I, su I suppose that all of you at some point, like me, have frustrated your children in, in the raising of your children. Something you said or something you did that frustrated them. You know, you pushed their buttons and maybe you did it on purpose. He's not talking about that occasional once every so often kind of a situation. He's talking about that consistent provocation of a father who has this absolute authority over his children. That's not supposed to be true. It's not the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And then he talks about bringing them up. That's the positive command. The Greek word is ek trefo. Ek means out of or up. 
Trepho means to nourish or to feed, to feed up, to nourish up. We're, we're, to, we're to nourish them up. We're to feed them and nourish them up. It's used on one occasion in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, of a nursing mother, of a nursing mother who's taking care of and nourishing up her child so that the child can grow up. And so you get these two specific commands, don't provoke and bring them up. And when he gives the positive command, bring them up, then he says specifically, you bring them up in something. You bring them up in training. And you bring them up in admonition. Training has to do with the physical sense of training. It also involves verbal, but it's more about the physical sense. Admonition has more to do with the verbal sense. Think of it this way. If you were to go watch a football team preparing for a football game, you would see them during the course of the week running plays, practicing tackles, uh, learning how to block, all the things that you do. That's the, that's the training aspect of it. And the coaches are standing around and they're teaching and they're instructing. This is how you do it. This is how you tackle. This is how you block. This is how you run the play. But when you hear the word admonition, now you're looking at the coach on the sidelines in the game, and he's, he's cheering the boys on. He's helping them to, to, to play the game as they're supposed to, to run the plays like they've been taught to. He's encouraging them. That's what he's talking about here. And we don't want to draw too much of a distinction between the two words because ultimately what he's trying to do is to bring these children to a place, these, these uh, children that are being discussed here, to a place where their lives are being shaped for the glory of God and for the purposes of God. And so he says, look, there's two commands. <clears throat> Fathers, you that have absolute authority over your family in this Roman culture, don't behave like the Romans. You bring your children up <clears throat> in a way that demonstrates that you're not provoking them to resentment and to discouragement, but instead you're nourishing them like a mother would nourish her child. You're nourishing them and bringing them along in the physical sense and in the verbal sense so that you're fashioning them and you're shaping them to become children that will live out their lives for the glory of God. Now, that's how you wrestle with this text. That's the background to what's being said here. How do we provoke our children to wrath? And I want to spend a very few minutes on this part. How do we provoke our children to wrath? Well, one of the ways is by overprotection. The father or the mother can be so fearful of uh, uh, some kind of bad or evil or harm befalling their children that they fence them in. We call them today what? Helicopter parents. They're always hovering. They don't want anything ever to happen to their child. They don't understand that measured risk-taking is necessary for a child's physical, moral, and spiritual development. Hear the words, measured risk-taking. The baby bird that's always in the nest, that never gets out of the nest, it's always in the safety of the nest, that's always being fed by the mother bird, never learns to fly. And children have to learn to grow in confidence and grow in, in their understanding of life and understand consequences. You make decisions, there are consequences to those decisions. And sometimes we frustrate children by overprotection. Sometimes we provoke them by favoritism. You can find that in the scripture. Isaac favored Esau. Rebecca favored Jacob. Jacob favored Joseph. And do you know those stories from the Old Testament? Did it ever turn out well? No, it never turns out well when you show favoritism to one child over another child, one that's 
that you're a special child and the others that are just your ordinary children, that never turns out well. You can provoke them by discouragement. <clears throat> by discouragement, you just uh, consistently speak negative things to your child. Somebody said, one should correct the child by persuading him. I agree. One should correct the child by persuading him. Being positive as much as we possibly can, encouraging our children. When I think about this particular aspect of how you provoke your children to discouragement, <clears throat> I think of Homer Hickman. Do you know that story of the Rocket Boys? And how he had a dream of uh, wanting to do something very specific with uh, NASA and how he had that dream of, of making these rockets and he shot them off. A West Virginia boy shot them off over over again trying to perfect and what was his father doing constantly discouraging him discouraging him discouraging him and when you do that you can provoke a child you can provoke a child by neglecting a child i would suggest to you that one of the greatest problems in american society are the children that are basically raising themselves they don't have fathers that are in their homes that are leading in their families and showing their children how to live for Jesus Christ. The scripture says, Proverbs 29, verse 15, that a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Hear what he says, a child left to himself brings shame. When you think about a story, you think about David and Absalom. Go back and read it. 2 Samuel chapter 14, how David neglected his son at one point. Or we can provoke our children by bitter words and, and outright physical cruelty. There are too many cases, aren't there, of unthinkable cruelty to children, to boys and girls, even to babies. And you provoke your children by that kind of, of physical cruelty where you throw around your superior strength and your, your superior authority. <clears throat> you provoke a child. But now listen, we could make a long list of ways to provoke children, couldn't we? Some of us have perfected it. We know exactly what gets under the skin of our children, and sometimes we're guilty of pushing those buttons repeatedly over and over, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't do that. That's the way Roman fathers behaved. That's the way Roman fathers conducted themselves. Don't do that. Don't act like that. Love your kids. Learn to encourage your kids. Help to shape their lives. There are times for correction. There's times for discipline. Discipline is included in the word for training. There's times for discipline, but it shouldn't be all about discipline. There should be opportunities for our children to grow and to develop and to mature in the course of their lives and to do so in a positive way, not just a negative way. Effectively, the apostle is ruling out excessively severe discipline, unreasonable harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room that wants to be that kind of a parent to his or her children, but we have to remind ourselves that there are things that we should not be doing. We don't want to provoke our children to wrath. But where I want us to spend the rest of our time is on that positive command. He says, bring them up. Like a nursing mother, bring up your children. Nourish them, feed them up. Bring them up. 
And that's where I want us to spend our time because that phrase, bring them up, implies a number of things, three of which I want us to consider this morning. First of all, it implies that you have to be there. To bring them up, you have to be there. You have to be a part of your lives. They can't bring themselves up in the training, in the admonition of the Lord. We make time for everything else. We have to make time for our children. There is, no, there is nothing else that we give to our children more important than giving to our children our time. Some of you may remember the, the columnist, Ann Landers. Uh, she used to, was a syndicated columnist. She used to have an article in the paper on a regular basis, and you could read that article. And it went on for years after she passed. Somebody else came along. Ann Landers became just a, a name that others wrote under uh, in this advice column. But in one of her advice columns, she had an article called, Where Did the Years Go? And it was written by an absent father about his children. And this is what it says. I read it to you. I remember talking to my friends a number of years ago about our children. Mine were five and seven then, just the ages when their daddy means everything to them. I wish that I could have spent more time with my kids, but I was too busy working. After all, I wanted to give them all the things I never had when I was growing up. I loved the idea of coming home and having them sit on my lap and tell me about their day. Unfortunately, most days I came home so late that I was unable to kiss them good night after they had gone to sleep. It's amazing how fast kids grow. Before I knew it, they were 9 and 11. I missed seeing them in school plays. Everyone said they were terrific, but the plays always seemed to go on when I was traveling for business or tied up in a special conference. The kids never complained, but I could see the disappointment in their eyes. I kept promising that I would have more time next year, but the higher up the corporate ladder I climbed, the less time there seemed to be. Suddenly, they were no longer 9 and 11. They were 14 and 16-year-old teenagers. I didn't see my daughter the night she went on her first date or my son's championship basketball game. Mom made excuses, and I managed to, and I managed to telephone and talk to them before they left the house. I could hear the disappointment in their voices, but I explained as best I could. Don't ask me where the years have gone. Those little kids are 19 and 21 now and in college. I can't believe it. My job is less demanding, and I finally have time for them. But, they've, but they have their own interest, and there is no time for me. To be perfectly honest, I'm a little hurt. It seems like yesterday they were five and seven. I would give anything to, those, to, to, the, to live those years over. You can bet your life I'd do it, do it differently but they're gone now, and so is my chance to be a real dad. And you can hear the pain in that father. You know, I have uh, had more, almost 500 funerals since I've been pastor of this church. I've been to nearly three times that many funerals over the years that I've been a pastor of this church. I've been with families during those moments when their loved ones were passing away, when they were leaving us heading into eternity. Some of them were conscious. Some of them were able to speak. And I have never yet once ever heard, ever heard anybody ever say, I wish I'd spent another day at the office. I wish I'd spent a little more time on another trip or another conference or wish I'd have made a little more travel overseas to close another business deal. I've never once ever heard it. 
But I've heard people say, I wish I had more time with my family. I wish I had more time with my children. When the Apostle Paul comes here and he says, bring them up, it implies you have to be there. You have to be there. Listen to me. Moms and dads, those of you that are raising children, your kids don't have to be involved in everything there is that's going on. And you have to work your schedule such that you can be there for some of those things that they're doing. You have to be a part of their lives. Nobody can take your place in their lives. Government services can't replace a mother's love and a father's leadership. Social services can't replace a stable home or a parent's guidance. We have to be there, moms and dads. We have to be there. We have to be there. Well, my job is just too demanding. And maybe you need to have a conversation with your boss. Maybe you need to change your job because your children's life, lives are a lot more important than whatever it is you're doing. You've got to understand, when he says bring them up, he is implying that the parents are there. They're in their children's lives. They're like a nursing mother. You can't nurse your child from a distance. It's like a nursing mother who's nursing up her children. you got to be in your children's lives. And I would say to those of you who are grandparents like me, be in your grandkids' lives as much as you can be. I know it's more difficult because your children move away and they live in dist distant cities, but the more you can be in your grandchildren's lives, the better off it is. One of the memories of my life I will never forget for as long as, my life, as I live my life, over the course of my years growing up, every Tuesday evening, every Tuesday evening, every Tuesday evening, we went to my grandparents' house where all of my mother's brothers and sisters and all of my cousins got together, and my grandma fixed that supper and put it on that table. And my one cousin, who was bigger and older than me, always put me in a headlock and always rubbed my head with his knuckles. And I hated it every moment. I threatened him, when I get big enough, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to get even with you. Did that bitterness just spill out? <laughs> but I'll never forget those meals as we all came into the dining room and we stood around that dining room table. The kids ate in another room at their own tables. All the adults around one big dining room table. We all came into that one room and my granddaddy stood up and he began to pray and to ask the blessing over those meals. Grandparents, be a part of your children's lives as much as is possible. Children need us to be there. Don't be like the Roman fathers. They had absolute authority over their children. They could determine whether they lived or died. But for the most part, they farmed them out to somebody else. Don't farm your children out to somebody else. We already do that enough with the school system. We already do that enough with daycare. We already do that enough in a lot of other aspects. Don't farm them out. You have to be there. It's implied when he says bring them up that parents are there. They're a part of their children's lives. Be a part of your children's lives as much as is possible. There simply is no substitute for two things in our children's lives. One is you and the other is time. Amen? One is you and the other is time. And secondly, it implies this positive command to bring up our children. It implies that you care about what you're doing. 
You're not just going through the motions. You're not just doing what you have to do, that you care about what you're doing. A lot of parents think their job is just providing their children a place to live and food on the table and clothes on their children's backs and maybe a good education. But they give no attention to what really matters in life, the spiritual aspect of their children's lives. Pay attention to what he says. And you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath. That's the negative command. But here's the positive one. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know why? Because nobody else is going to do that. Nobody else is going to do that. If you don't do that, parents, that's your responsibility. But too often what we've done is we've inoculated our children against Christianity. Recently I got my flu shot. Maybe you should do that as well if you haven't done that yet. But as I was getting my flu shot and watching that needle get ever closer to my arm, I was thinking back across my life and how many different times I've been inoculated for something. The very first time I can remember was when I was uh, a child in early elementary school years, early 60s, and the polio vaccine was out. And we went to the Southwest DeKalb High School where my sister, my oldest sister, went to high school. We lined up in a line. We walked, if I remember correctly, into the gymnasium. We were met there by somebody who had a little square sugar cube. And the vaccine for polio, both my mother and my wife's father both had had polio, that little vaccine that was in that sugar cube. And we walked through the line. We got that little sugar cube. We ate it, and that was the end of it. And apparently... I don't understand how all this works. You medical folks can do a lot better job, obviously, than I can do. But somehow you take enough of the virus in some particular form that it begins to create antibodies within your system so that you can fight off any infection of that particular type that comes to your body, right? You know, too many parents are giving their children just enough of a dose of Christianity that it inoculates them to the real thing. We're just sort of skipping along the surface. We're just sort of going along and going through the motions of our religiosity. But there's an absence of a passionate love for God where our children see it. They witness it. They hear it. Absence of a passionate love for God. And when we have that absence, we're doing little more than vaccinating our children against Christianity. Christianity is just something we come to do on Sunday. It's not the reality of our lives 24-7, seven days a week. I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about Timothy's faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, you ought to read it sometime. By the way, Timothy's father was a Gentile and as far as we know was not a believer. And here's a situation where it wasn't the father who taught his son the things of God, the ways of God. It was a grandmother and a mother. But listen to what it says. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith. You hear those words? The genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Parents have got to see to it that they demonstrate for their children every single day of the week 
that they have a passionate love for God. We don't put on our Sunday clothes to, that say, I love God, and we take them off on Monday, and we live another way. If we do that, we're just vaccinating our children against the real kind of Christianity that we desperately want them to enjoy and experience for the rest of their lives. A well-known author by the name of Ray Ortland, written a number of books. He's also a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, and he writes, 50 years ago, my dad and mom gave me a new Bible. It was my senior year in high school, the first week of two-a-day football practices, and I crawled home that day bone-tired. Mom made a special dinner for me since it was my birthday, and Dad gave me a Bible with the following inscription. Bud, that's what he called him, Bud, nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mother and I have found this book our dearest treasure. We give it to you, and doing so can give nothing greater. Be a student of the Bible, and your life will be full of blessing. We love you, signed, Dad. And then Philippians 1.6, he continues, Ray Ortland continues, as I read these wonderful words, it never occurred to me to think, Dad doesn't really believe that, it's just religious talk. I knew he meant it because I watched him live it. He was a student of the Bible and his life was full of blessing and I wanted what he had. I want what my mother and my daddy had. Matter of fact, I have what my mother and my daddy had. Too often we're inoculating our children against Christianity. They grow up. They no longer want anything to do with Christ because we taught them just enough Christianity that they were vaccinated against it when they had the opportunity to choose it for themselves. When he says bring them up, it implies that you're there. You're a part of their lives. Like a mother nursing her child, it implies that you care about what you're doing, that you care about the spiritual life of your child. I find too few parents that care about the spiritual lives of their children. When you see that positive command, bring them up, it implies that you understand your mission that you understand your mission. This is about giving our children the gospel and showing them how to have a vital and living relationship with the God of heaven through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Parenting is about God's love, about God's grace, about God's enabling power, about God's hope. All of these wonderful things that we want our children to experience in the course of our lives. This is not just a matter of indoctrinating our children with moralistic teachings and laws that they have to obey. This is about bringing our children into a vital relationship with the living Christ and helping them to understand what it means to walk and to talk with God every single day. Don't pray for your children. Don't just pray for your children. Pray with your children. Amen? Pray with your children. Don't just give them a bunch of uh, rules and regulations, a list of, of, the, of the moralistic teachings that they have to follow. Show them how to have a real relationship with God that every single day he's real to them. Every single day. I love the Old Testament story of Enoch, and it drives home what I'm trying to tell you about. When he was 65 years of age, he had a son by the name of Methuselah. 
And after that son was born, it says that Enoch walked with God. You ever had one of those children that you thought to yourself, I'm just going to get closer to God when this, when this was raised. This, by the time he's raised, she's raised, I'm going to be closer to God. I just know it. Because I'm going to be seeking God more than I've ever sought God. I don't know if Methuselah was that kind of a child or not. But at that particular moment when Methuselah was born, the scripture says that Enoch began to walk with God. Do you realize that the Bible only has a handful of scriptures that say anything about Enoch? In Genesis chapter 5, you find him in a genealogy in Luke. You find him as a prophet in the book of Jude. And you find him mentioned in the book of Hebrews where it says that he pleased God. But do you know what stood out about what stood out about Enoch? It says for the next 300 years of his life, he lived to be 365. For the next 300 years of his life, he walked with God. Do you understand those words? He walked with God. He didn't get up on Sunday and say, okay, God, this is your day. But then when Monday comes, this is my day. Every single day, he walked with God. Do you understand the circumstances in which he walked with God? He is the great-grandfather to Noah. He was living during those days when some of the worst wickedness of the day could be found. You remember what it says about Noah in his generation? That even the imaginations were evil. Not just their deeds, even their imaginations were evil. That's when Enoch was, live, was living. And yet Enoch, in the midst of all of that wickedness that surrounded him, that ultimately brought God to destroy mankind, except for Noah and his family. During all of that time of wickedness, Enoch walked with God he walked with God every single day. Don't tell me that you can't walk with God in this world if Enoch could walk with God in his world. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I can tell you this. You can walk with God no matter what the circumstances of your life are. And Enoch walked with God. Listen, he pleased God. And then it just says this about him. He was not for God took him. Didn't have any record of him dying. Didn't have any record of him being buried. Didn't have any record of a funeral service for him. Any grieving that went on over him. People went to look for him and they couldn't find him because God had taken him. One of two men in the scripture, Enoch and Elijah, that went to heaven without dying. In the fashion that we think of it, went to heaven without dying. But here was a man in a wicked day who walked with God. He walked with God. It implies that you understand your mission. Our mission isn't to give moralistic teachings to our children so that we hem them in, that they won't do what we don't want them to do. Our mission is to teach them to walk with God and to please God and to love God and to desire God with all of their hearts. Where are your children this morning? Are they gathering in a church with the people of God to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, to be challenged about the things of God? Elsie Fitzpatrick has an MA in Biblical Counseling from Trinity Theological Seminary. She's written numerous books. One of them is called Give Them Grace. It's a, it's a great way to think about parenting. Give them grace. But she had a conversation with a young professing Christian woman, and she writes about that conversation. I, I, I copied it and put it into my, my notes here. 
This is what she writes. Scratch the surface of the face of the young of the faith. Scratch the surface of the faith of the young people around you, and you'll find a disturbing deficiency of understanding of even the most basic tenets of Christianity. This is illustrated by a conversation I recently had with a young woman in her early 20s who had been raised in a Christian home and had attended church for most of her life. After assuring me that she was indeed saved, I asked her, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, what you're about to hear is a conversation that goes back and forth between Elsie and this young woman, back and forth. What does it mean to be a Christian? She replied, it means that you ask Jesus into your heart. No, it doesn't. Let me just stop here. No, it doesn't. It means that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again, and is the giver of eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. I believe that. Now, you may express that in a prayer, but you can pray a prayer and not believe that Jesus gives eternal life, not understand that, gives Jesus, that Jesus gives eternal life. She replied, it means that you ask Jesus into your heart. Yes, all right, but what does that mean? It means that you ask Jesus to forgive you. Okay, but what do you ask him to forgive you for? Bad things? I guess you ask him to forgive you for bad things, um, the sins you do? Like what? A deer in the headlights stared back at me. I thought I'd, I'd try a different tack. Why would Jesus forgive you? She fidgeted. Mm, because you asked him. Okay, I thought I'll try again. What do you think God wants you to know? She beamed. Now listen, listen, hear me. She beamed. He wants me to know that I should love myself and that there's nothing I can't do if I think I can. And what does God want from you? I asked. He wants me to do good stuff, like the deer reappeared. You know, be nice to others and don't hang around with bad people. Elsie continues, let's face it, most of our children believe that God is happy uh, if they're good for goodness sake. We've transformed the holy, magnificent, and loving God of the Bible into Santa and his elves. And instead of transmitting the gloriously liberating and life-changing truths of the gospel, we have taught our children that what God wants from them is morality. We've told them that being good, at least outwardly, is, to be all, is the be-all and end-all of their faith. This isn't the gospel. We're not handing down Christianity. And I agree. I agree. We're not handing down Christianity if we're not showing our children what it is to have a vital relationship and understand that that is our mission, to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I want them to know God I want them to be able to find God in the pages of Scripture. I don't want them to have to ride my coattails forever. I want them to be able to stand on their own faith and to be able to know God intimately and personally, personally for themselves. The Apostle Paul comes to a Roman culture where fathers had absolute authority, could let a child live or cause a child to die who had absolute authority over a child's life as long as that father lived and into that culture. 
The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes something that is transformative, something that's revolutionary. He says, fathers, that's not the way of God. God's way is a loving way towards your children. God's way is where you don't provoke your children. Can you imagine a Roman father provoking his children over and over and over again? Absolutely you can. Don't be like that, but you be one of those that brings up like a nursing mother. You nourish your children. You care for your children. You love your children. You're there for them. You care about what you're doing, and you know what's your mission. Your mission isn't just to turn out moralistic children. Your mission is to turn out children who want God and seek God like you want God and you seek God. If you don't want God and don't seek God, you'll never turn out children that want God and seek God. 